Welcome back to the Facts About PAX. She is Michaela Isler, NetPAX Executive Director. And he is Adam Belmar, the co-host of the number one PAC podcast in America. Today, we have a curveball for you. Or is it a slider, Adam? This pitch doesn't even look like it's going to cross the plate. But it does. And hey, isn't that what innovation is supposed to look like? It's disruptive. And when you're at the plate, it can leave you looking. So on today's show, we're going to give you a good look at the mechanics of ranked choice voting. What it means, where it's in use, and why some unlikely politicos are squaring up to the plate and swinging away. Coming up in just a minute... Eric Wilson, the director of the Center for Campaign Innovation on Ranked Choice Voting and why he says it could be a winning solution in primary season. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAPPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. Thanks, Adam. And as an important reminder to our listeners and NAPAC members, uh, your seat is reserved for our next PAC lunch, our legal and compliance refresher next week on Tuesday, September 27th. Adam, as always, we have the great Carol Laham, partner at Wiley Rhine, and she'll be going over really the top compliance issues for PACs around the elections and really any other burning compliance questions that our members might have. So joining us now for fresh perspective on the ascendant issue of ranked choice voting is our good friend, Eric Wilson. Thanks for being with us for a discussion. I know our audience will enjoy learning more about Eric. I am so excited to be back on my favorite podcast that isn't my own. That is exactly the right answer. And we're excited to have you back. You wear a lot of hats, Eric. But I have to tell you, this whole idea of the emergence of ranked choice voting it's just fascinated me. And I feel like somehow in some jurisdictions, Eric, they just threw out the box top of the board game with all the rules <laughs> on it and they started making up new ones. And so I've wanted to figure out a way to tackle this for some time. And then bam, the American Spectator published your piece last week. And the headline, everybody listening, is almost as important as the subhead. So here it comes. Time for the GOP to embrace ranked choice voting it could be a winning solution in primary season. Eric Wilson, what's the rhyme and reason here? Well, Adam, I'm happy to report that ranked choice voting isn't new. People have been doing it for a long time now. So in Australia, where I first learned about this, they've been voting by ranked choice uh, for over 100 years. Uh, anyone who has ever participated in a political convention in the United States is familiar with ranked choice voting, they've just done it in multiple rounds instead of on on one ballot. So one of the reasons that we're starting to look at ranked choice voting uh, is because of issues like political polarization. Uh, one of the reasons I'm really interested in it is we have seen the number of primaries with more than three candidates, more than triple over the last 20 years. So because of technology, because of the ability to raise money online, because of social media and being able to reach voters very affordably, more candidates are getting into races. They're staying around longer. The parties aren't playing that role of decision maker or clearing the field. And so we've got more crowded primaries. We've, we saw it in Pennsylvania and Ohio this year where the nominee only got about a third of the vote. Um, so that's why we're looking at ranked choice voting, which is a system of voting that requires the winner, 
whether that's in a primary or a general election, to get 50% plus one. So Eric, you hit on just the running in a crowded primary election field can be so bruising and, and even sometimes politically fatal. How would ranked choice then, let's dig in this a little bit, change that? Right. So when you think about what's going on in a, a crowded primary campaign, elections are zero sum, right? Someone has to win, someone has to lose. In order for me to get vote share in a, a traditional contest where first, you know, we sometimes call it plurality or first past the post, I have to take it away from someone else or there have to be enough undecided voters. But more often it's I'm taking it away from someone else. So that means going negative against them, not necessarily talking about issues, but talking about why they're unqualified or inconsistent in their record. With ranked choice voting, you realign those incentives to say the best way to get to 50% plus one is by attracting the first choice supporters of other candidates. So when those candidates don't make it to the subsequent rounds, then their supporters will preference or rank you higher. And so it changes the campaign or the election from addition by subtraction to addition by addition. And that's how you get a more positive campaign when you realign the incentives to actually make negative campaigning, attacking specific candidates, a liability. Well, Eric, I've seen the Hunger Games, and I know that decreasing the carnage makes for less fun, at least less sales of movie tickets. And our audience knows a little bit about the blood sport that is politics. And so when you say we could move more towards running campaigns that are positive, are we talking about preserving the viability of candidates for other future elections? Or is this just a, as my old boss would say, strategery? <laughs> So one of the criticisms that we hear often about ranked choice voting is it, it doesn't vet the nominee. It, it doesn't test how tough their skin is and they're not prepared for the attacks. And, and what we see, however, um, is oftentimes uh, in primaries, the outcome is not changed by ranked choice voting. Um, so the, the person who leads in that first round in a traditional primary plurality winner contest would be the nominee. They gain more support round over round. So you get the same nominee with a more positive campaign and more primary voters know about them. So it's a win-win from that regard. The other thing we see is that in a primary uh, ranked choice voting context, or, or primary context broadly, the attacks made against a candidate or within the same party are not going to be the same attacks that are made uh, by the opposing party, by, by Democrats, for example. So uh, if you look at some of the contests we studied in Virginia, the attacks were so-and-so voted for this bill. They're not sufficiently conservative. They are soft on crime. They voted for this bill, which passed with overwhelming bipartisan support, things like that. They're, they're, they're sort of intramural fights to, to degrade their conservative bona fides. Then they get through that primary. They win the nomination. It's on to the general election. None of that is what's being discussed by the other side. So they weren't prepared for those attacks. It's focusing on things like immigration, abortion, all of the red versus blue issues. So it does not take away the 
pointed issues that our campaigns need to be about, but it focuses it back on policies and priorities rather than personalities. Eric, you know, I was pretty skeptical about the Virginia ranked choice, <laughs> you know, primary, uh, which came through the Republican Party. Um, and so maybe we can, you know, talk a little bit about the key findings there. You know, uh, your piece in the American Spectator did include some very interesting survey results uh, that I think our, our listeners would find interesting about Virginia. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Right. So in 2021, the, the state Republican Party in Virginia decided to nominate via an unassembled convention using ranked choice voting. Um, so we described it as a convention on paper, which anyone who sat through one of those conventions was really grateful um, for for that that shorter uh, time period. Uh, and we sort of heard anecdotally that Glenn Youngkin emerged from that contest with a more unified party. His his uh, favorable image among voters was better than if he had gone through an attack uh, style campaign, reaching more voters. And and some of the punditry after his win in 2021 was around, did ranked choice voting really help him out? So we had a unique opportunity in Virginia this year. So you had three congressional districts, the 8th, 10th, and 11th up here in Northern Virginia, decide to use ranked choice voting again. One of those neighboring districts from the 10th is Virginia's 7th district that did the more traditional state-run primary process. For very peculiar reasons, Virginia's congressional districts get to choose how they nominate their, their candidates, and each party can be different, and each district can be different. So we had what is close to a perfect A-B test as possible. So we found three really important things. So in Virginia's 7th district, where they did not use ranked choice voting, um, Yesley Vega won with 31% of the vote. She was part of a multi-candidate field. We found that 59% of voters thought that the campaign was positive. Compare that to the 10th district, where they did use ranked choice voting, 84% of Republican primary voters said that it was a positive campaign, including 66, two out of three said it was a mostly positive campaign, right? So that, that finding alone should convince people of why this is an important innovation. Second, we found that the candidates, the nominees, ended up in a better position. So... Yesley Vega uh, won the nomination. She ended up with a, a favorability of 64%. About one in four voters didn't have an opinion or hadn't heard of her. But in the 10th district, the nominee, Hung Kao, emerged with 86% favorability and almost the highest name ID you could, could statistically get. And that's because you've got to learn about all of the candidates if you're going to be asked to, to rank. So he ended up in a better position, more favorability, better known. But the third finding, which is really important, is that the runners up in the ranked choice voting contest actually fared better than the nominee in the non-ranked choice voting contest. So what do I mean by that? You had the the two candidates that, that came in second, Janine Lawson and Brandon Michonne, ended up with very high favorabilities, and they are some of the top recruiting targets to to run again. And so your ranked choice voting contest really builds out that bench, makes it easier for people to run again. In the 7th District, we saw State Senator Bryce Reeves take on a ton of negatives. He had the highest unfavorability ranking of anyone that we measured at about 27%. 
he's going to have to run for his seat again in 2023 and took on a lot of attacks because, again, the way that race is framed, you've got to take votes away from the front runner, who in this case was Senator Bryce Reeves, in order to get ahead. You know what, Eric? I hear you when you say that ranked choice voting has been around for a long time. It just ain't been around here. Right. And it's just not familiar to many of the political professionals who are listening to this show. And I think also about other worldwide things that we need to consider that are adopted in other places. I mean, look at a value-added tax. A lot of the world thinks that that's uh, a pretty powerful tool. So I want to push back. I get the idea that there can be some real positive outcomes. You have pointed out how this testbed case in Virginia among Republicans in their primary was a benefit and why it's worth considering. But for a lot of folks, the whole idea of changing the way we do things is scary, and rightfully so. Can you give us some idea of whether this is going to be a positive if it's implemented and bought into by people on both sides of the aisle, or is this just a strategy that can benefit some and not others? Yeah, so there are a few perspectives I can offer here. The first is that with any change in in how we vote, there's always that initial uh, learning opportunity. You've seen this in states that switch to all vote by mail, where people find it very unpopular, but by the second time they do it, there's that's just how we vote. Uh, so we've seen that time and time again. In Virginia, we've now been doing it for three election cycles. We found in the 10th district where, where they have they did it in 2020, 21, and 22, 56% of Republican primary voters prefer ranked choice voting over the single selection in their primaries. So we see that once you educate people and, and they get to experience, they begin to like it. One of the things that's been tough about the introduction of ranked choice voting in the United States is it's frequently paired with other reforms, many of which I don't care for. So, for example, in in Alaska, where most people became exposed to this, it was a final five open primary where the top five finishers went forward, and then you have ranked choice voting. So sort of like a California jungle primary plus a ranked choice voting. And I'm a big advocate for using ranked choice voting in primary settings because they they are crowded um, and we need to get those resolved. There are some states also where you have uh, really expensive runoffs. So uh, Texas, Georgia, they come to mind where we people also call ranked choice voting instant runoff. So it becomes a, a way to more efficiently administer elections. And it is certainly confusing to people, but we have really good resources for how to implement it. Most of the the voting machines that exist in the country are ready to be equipped with ranked choice voting at, at very minimal cost. So I think it's something that we'll continue to see as a really more advanced approach to voting. So if we go through this exercise of getting millions of people out to vote, um, instead of a binary one or a zero, uh, Republican or Democrat, it's great if we can uh, have a more sophisticated result uh, through ranked choice voting. Michaela, you served for a long time as a practitioner in our space, a PAC manager. When new things come into the space that could potentially affect 
the kind of work that we do, even when it could potentially be aligned with our efforts to moderate and get solutions oriented and business friendly policies through our legislatures. How should our audience be thinking about this? Eric brings up some really important points and, and it's going to grow on people because we're going to see it more, right? Yeah, you know, change is hard, as Eric alluded to earlier, and we all know that. I think that most PAC practitioners would welcome a less polarizing environment and uh, would embrace uh, some of the, you know, some of the findings that we're hearing Eric talk about in Virginia. Um, but it'll take some time. Uh, and I think that folks will come around. And, and as Eric said, as we see the positive results in some of these key states long term, uh, you know, I don't know that it'll change really our day to day and how we operate necessarily from a operational perspective. But I do think that having more positive primary elections would benefit all of us, quite frankly. And I think, Michaela, one thing that I see for the PAC community here is often it, it's a, a question of who do we support in this primary? Because you don't want to be on the, the losing side of a primary. But if you have a candidate who is a champion for your issues, maybe even is one of your members, you want to be able to support them. Ranked choice voting in, in primaries allows you to do that because you don't have to worry about them um, bashing the eventual nominee. Um, you can support multiple people in the same race without kind of being a contradiction. Uh, so I, I think it offers some some inter interesting opportunities. The only people who really, really don't like this are the pollsters who have a hard enough time polling races. But when you have to factor in uh, second, third and fourth choice votes, it gets even more complex. Wow, this is nuanced stuff, and getting to it and trying to understand it is even more helpful when we had a point of view. So when I read your article, Eric, I said immediately, Michaela, this is the right time to try and ask Eric to come back. Really appreciate you bringing these forward for your constituents to look at. And I would just point out, Michaela, I think if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. And uh, this doesn't need to be a partisan issue, although there are compelling reasons for every side to look at it harder and think about what Eric's talking about. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric Wilson, host of the Business of Politics podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, and director of the Center for Campaign Innovation. Thank you so much for sharing these insights today and a point of view that we, we really need to explore a little bit further. We hope to have you back. Thanks, Michaela and Adam. It's great to be with you as always. And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing the show. Subscribe and meet us right back here on the Facts About Packs podcast.